Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, and this is our first episode of 2021, at least our first episode recorded in 2021. <laughs> um, yeah, genre Equality was sort of, you know, recorded just a couple of days before the new year, but it was released on the first. I uh, hope you have caught that also, you know, that is on our Facebook page and our Mixcloud as per usual. Uh, mm-hmm. You can also find the links on our, on my Twitter account. Uh, but here, we are about to kind of clean up the dredges of 2020. Um, while it was a terrible year, um, strangely, there was actually a lot of good shit um, on, <laughs> on TV and on film. Yep. And one of the bright spots of 2020, I felt, was that the complete lack of blockbusters really allowed um, independent films to shine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, in, in any other year, like, most of the films that we talked about, like, um, in our previous episodes, like, for example, Dick Johnson is dead, uh, etc., right, probably wouldn't be getting the attention it's gotten because, you know, Black Widow will be eating up, like, eight weeks of press, <laughs> things, things like that, you know. So I'm, yeah. I'm really glad that, like, indie cinema hasn't really slowed down at all. Like, in fact, it's actually gotten a bigger platform because um, now they're being released on streaming mm-hmm. and now they suddenly become, like, kind of hits but what i wanted to talk about here on this episode was the indie movies that were great but you probably missed uh yeah. i said did you catch any of these films before i recommended them to you uh no no i mean the only mm, honeyland no no yeah I, I all of this kind of slipped past i did see the trailer for the nest mm. uh but not until you know we kind of discussed that we wanted to, to have it on the show Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, all three of his films um, are, are very, very small films. And I think a lot of people may not have seen them, especially in Singapore, because I think St. Francis only came out in the projector, I, I want to say, like, mid, middle of the year, but didn't really have much hype behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, Honeyland, technically, technically, I know if, you, if you're <laughs> going to be, like, technical, it's a 2019 release, but it only came to Singapore via the projector in 2020. So I consider it a 2020 release, like, because... You know, there was no other way for me to watch it other than uh, the projector. Yeah. Uh, as as for the nest, uh, boy, even I didn't want to watch this one when I first uh, when <laughs> the poster and everything. Literally, no no idea what it was about. The the title was super unevocative. Mm-hmm. Um, trailer was oh, meh meh. Um, I only watch it because like I'm a big fan of Carrie Coon from The Leftovers. Yeah. Um, that's the only reason. And it was one of those like I watched it like the final few days of uh 2020. And I was like, ah <laughs> oh, fuck, why didn't I watch this sooner? Um oh, yeah. yeah. So so these are the films that we'll be talking about. Uh, um the Saint Francis is a bit of a, a millennial comedy um mm-hmm. about the flailing uh, 30-plus-year-old uh, woman uh, yeah. who is uh, basically given a new lease on life when she becomes a nanny. Um, secondly, uh, as I mentioned, The Nest is a bit of a 1980s uh, haunted house horror without ghosts. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll explain what that means later. Yeah. Uh, basically, they're haunted by the ghosts of capitalism. Mm. Uh, and, and, and we'll discuss that. Uh, uh, AKA, The Nest is actually the Max Lord story that we didn't get to see. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah I thought that too, right? Because <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, and Honeyland is a bit of an anthropological documentary that's very observational. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't lead you anywhere with any voiceovers or interviews or anything. It's just an observational portrait of a lonely rural beekeeper in Macedonia yep. uh, that stumbles into an environmental conflict. Uh, we'll talk about uh, that later. But let's begin uh, with St. Francis of Corsa. Um 
this was brought in by anticipated uh, anticipated <laughs> i mean yeah i anticipated it uh, it was brought <laughs> in by, by anticipate pictures uh mid last year mm-hmm. uh and it focuses on um, a flailing 34 year old bridget played by kelly sullivan who also wrote and directed this and starred in it of course um she is a bit directionless in life uh, has no career has no um ambition uh, finally, she catches a break when she meets a nice guy uh, and lands a much-needed job nannying a, a six-year-old named Francis, mm-hmm. who is played by a scene-stealing uh, Ramona Edith Williams. Uh, but unfortunately, um, an unwanted pregnancy introduces an unexpected complication. Yeah. Uh, to make things worse, uh, she clashes with the obstinate Francis. Uh, they don't get along very well at the beginning, at least, mm-hmm. uh, and struggles to navigate uh, the growing tension between um, Francis's uh, lesbian moms. Um, amidst her tempestuous own personal relationships uh, and a, a, a reluctant friendship with uh, the six-year-old emerges uh, and Bridget contends with uh, the inevitable joys and the shit shows of becoming a part of someone else's family even if she yeah. doesn't have plans to have her own. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I um, really loved this kind of um, frank, no-bullshit uh, portrait of a millennial woman. Um, it, this may sound like hollow praise but i feel like this is kind of like lena dunham done right finally um, <laughs> uh well what did, what did you think about saint francis oh i really enjoyed saint francis um just the chemistry of the main relationship between between nanny and child was so charming and like ramona Edith is absolutely the cutest thing Great some of the lines yeah the, some of the lines that she gets are amazing uh even from like the onset of the film like when they first start to meet like she's just throwing shade all the time and i love it i love it i'm there for it um i i think it's a very interesting kind of um portrayal of of the struggles of i guess you would call it an elder millennial right like she's 34 yeah mm. uh, there's even a discussion with her with her you know what guy friend partner bo mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it because like clearly she hasn't quite defined what that is, despite the fact that he's seeing her through through the entire process of uh, getting the abortion and so on and so forth. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, like you know, he she accuses him of being millennial, uh, and and you know, he says you are millennial too, and and she says no, I'm on the cups of that. And I think that's kind of um, a very interesting way of like looking at at the approach to this, like mm. her inability to kind of be in touch with her own emotions as we go through her journey here right the, the growing kind of relationships she had on the romantic front on the work front the kind of like sideline uh, adventures that she has yeah, yeah, yeah and even like her clashing with with these two very clearly liberal um, um women uh, in the uh-huh. form of, of his parents is, is a very kind of interesting millennial dilemma right uh, I, I think that it's all a very fascinating study in the way in which she navigates all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are times when I feel as though the way it's told, in particular, her relationship with with the guy, is a bit messy. Like mm. you don't really get because they have a lot of like jumping uh, in terms of the timeline. You know uh, what exactly their relationship is like, and because it's not the primary relationship, right? Like we only catch glimpses of that. And I wish we could have explored that a bit more. Yeah, definitely. Uh, um, at the end of the day, not to take away anything from a very, very solid performance mm. um, by both Kelly and by uh, Ramona as well. Like, such a joy to watch them interact. 
I mean, like, mm-hmm. there's so many great moments there that are both, like, comedic and, and dramatic and, and just overall, like, very, very heartfelt. Yeah. Um, I love it. It, it, was, uh, it was a fun watch, I, I think, uh, mm-hmm. despite, um, you know, the, the fact that it does deal with her coping with, with um, the abortion and everything uh, else, right? Everything yeah. Else, yeah. Like, but it was still like a fun watch to see how how we heal, right? Like how yeah. how we heal our relationships and how you know sometimes childlike wonder is such an important part mm-hmm. of of rediscovering yourselves and rediscovering your relationships. Yeah, um, I think Kelly O'Sullivan really uh, took a fresh approach to. Um, kind of a, a formula that I've seen before, you know, the disaffected, unattached millennial, um, you know, the ennui-laden person, uh, grasping for meaning. Uh, and then, you know, they, they, they kind of form a relationship with a child who forces her to grow up and face the real world, you know, in all its cute and terrifying glory. Um, it's kind of been done before, you know, but like yeah. writer and star Kelly O'Sullivan kind of turns the premise into something wise and witty because it, St. Francis feels so so loose, so messy, so mm-hmm. um so very real. Uh, there, there, there is very little um unorganic about the stories being presented here. Um yeah. even even the, the portrayal of um Francis's mother, uh, one of her, her mothers uh with postpartum uh, de- depression, mm-hmm. um also feels very real. Uh. Yeah. Um Kelly Osaba, what she does here again, I gotta say, it's like Lena Dunham done right, like you know. Like, I mean, a, a lot of people have done it before. Like, like Broad City is also like you know Lena Dunham done right, yeah. and and this is another one, la. Um, there is uh this is this kind of follows a, a trend of very um ultra realistic millennial stories. Do you know what I mean? Like you know, yeah. the master of none kind of, kind of type. You know, mm-hmm. um, very honest, like, and and I really like these kind of stories. And this was a very special uh, indie movie to me that I watched last year. I did not expect it to rank that highly on, on my top 25, you know. Um, yeah. it, it, it didn't break the top 10 quite, but it was, it was almost there. Um, this, this, this was great, man. I, I loved all the performances here. Um, mm. Kelly O'Sullivan, especially because like, she wrote, directed, edited, and you know, yep. stars in it. She's in every single frame, which I didn't notice until I had rewatched it. She's in every scene. Um, yeah. It's crazy how much she does in this in this film, mm-hmm. um, But you know, it, it doesn't make it easy going, especially with the relationship between Francis and um, and Bridget. Uh, mm-hmm. The bond unfolding, you know, it kind of fits and starts uh, as the mm-hmm. two leading uh, ladies, shall we say? Although <laughs> one is not a lady, uh, learn their way around each other and themselves. You know, I love that they embrace that neither are perfect. Yeah. And and, and Kelly O'Sullivan projects such deep empathy into Bridget, into Francis, into Francis's uh, mothers, mm-hmm. that it's difficult to stay angry at them uh, even when they make mistakes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Man, the, this is great. You know, even, even how they approach uh, abortion and, and everything is, is really just so frank. You know, there's no like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's very different from never ready sometimes always, but yeah. it is similar in the fact that it's just very honest uh, with, mm-hmm. with its approach to it. Yeah, I mean, it definitely isn't as visceral i mean there's a fair bit of blood but there's it isn't as visceral as as uh, never sometimes always maybe yeah um but you know it has its own it has its own charm i mean like it definitely is a, a notable mention from last year it's not not perfect though uh, no, i it's don't not perfect yeah i don't understand that whole like side quest with <laughs> with the music teacher like that whole part i could have done without mm-hmm. um 
Because it didn't, I mean, like, it felt like one of those, oh, okay, she's going to learn a lesson here. But I had no idea what the lesson was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do feel like um, the build-up of characters for the two mothers felt a little rushed. Yep. Um, like, you know, because we are so focused on on uh, what Bridget is doing, right, for the first kind of half. And then as we approach her, only then do we get to know the mothers. And it's a lot at one time. Uh, to be fair, they are going through a lot as a family, so that's that's understandable. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. yeah, but that did feel a bit rushed. Uh, yeah, but so yeah. many great payoff moments. Uh, so many just like great lines. I think my favorite is that "Why am I crying? I am an agnostic feminist." Yeah, <laughs> one of my favorite lines from the show. Yeah, um, I I think the emotional climax really hinges on the film's strengths, uh, and they really do pay off all the stuff that we like about the film. Yeah, uh, the result is very satisfying. It's it's heart worn. Um, a very unusual coming of age story for a thirty plus year old. Yeah, but it, it, it's great because you know it turns out like there are a lot of things that have kind of gone unsaid in unsaid in films, and coming of age doesn't just have to be in adolescence. It can mm-hmm. be at any point of life. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, like I would classify a lot of. Um, midlife crisis films as coming of age as well. You know, you're just coming to a different age, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, I enjoyed this exceptionally frank, very refreshingly non-judgmental indie. Yeah. Uh, and it has a really no-nonsense approach to issues of gender, um, abortion, child-rearing, motherhood. Um, it's it's and, and 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 it's very funny, as we mentioned. You know, it leaves ample room for laughter. It's not yeah. it's not messagey in any way, uh, and it's anchored by like delicate moving performances from, mm. from O'Sullivan and, and the rest of the crew. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you may kind of figure out where it's going to end. Uh, I, yeah. I, I, at least I knew where it was going to end. <laughs> uh, you know, um, it was pretty obvious. Uh, but the, the journey to get there and the ending itself doesn't lose any of its power just because I knew where it was going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but that being said, right, you know, with the way it ended and all that, not, we're not going to spoil it. Uh, I would love to see a second movie. Like, if they made a second movie just about, you know, Bridget and, and Francis kind of, like, growing up together, whether they're together or separate and that relationship, I would love to see that. Yeah, yeah, same, man, same. Um, and if she can imbue that kind of, like, um, honest, very sharply observed kind of character uh, study uh, again, mm-hmm. yeah. um, a sequel is definitely uh, in my books as well, man. I would definitely be happy for it. But I doubt it. I think Ke- Kelly O'Sullivan is one of those that's just going to, you know, they're not gonna try to franchise something. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, but this is this is a great debut feature for him. I, 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 I'm, I'm eager to see whatever she does next, whether it is, uh, a sequel or whether it is an, another film. Uh, mm-hmm. and 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 I want to see how this child actor grows up. See whether you know, uh, see whether she is a Drew Barrymore or Nellie Portman, or yeah. whether she's one of those other child actors like Macaulay Culkin that failed. You know? uh... Yeah, I, I, I hope not. I hope not. I really do like Ramona Ely Williams. I think she's had a lot of promise. To be that age and to be de- to deliver lines with such gumption is just mm-hmm. really quite something. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Uh, next up, uh, let's talk about The Nest. Uh, man, with such an unevocative title. Like I said, <laughs> I'm I'm a very big fan of Carrie Coon, who who I loved in The Leftovers. I think she's yeah. like an amazing actress. Mm-hmm. I mean, of, of course, Jude Law is great too. Uh but another another reason I watched it is also because I like Sean Durkin. Um, I haven't seen him uh, write or direct the film in about yep. seven or eight years. It's been a long time. So there were a couple of reasons why I decided to jump into this uh, despite being totally uninter- uninterested in it. Mm-hmm. And, and let me tell you, when you watch the trailer for this, you oh will be uninter- uninterested in it as yeah, well. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> the, the thing is, right, like, it really hides a little very mature gem of a movie here. Um, yeah. 
it follows a, a character named Rory, uh, mm-hmm. who is an embe- uh, who's played by Jude Law. Uh, he is an ambitious entrepreneur and, and a commodities broker. Uh, he has a perfectly happy life in America with his wife, mm-hmm. uh, Alison Kerry Coon, uh, and their two children. But he convinces them uh, to leave the comforts of suburban America and return to his native England during the 1980s. He senses opportunity. Uh, so Rory rejoins his former firm and leases a centuries-old country manor uh, with grounds for Alison to build a stable. She actually rears horses for a living. Yeah. Um, soon, the promise of his uh, lucrative new beginning starts to unravel when he makes uh, a series of increasingly unwise business decisions. Uh, then the couple have to face the unwelcome proofs uh, lying beneath the surface of a, of a happy family. You know, like it just um, widens the cracks that were already there. Uh, and I like, I really love that this was, this was my fa- favorite haunted house horror of, um, of 2020 that did not have ghosts, you know. Um, so much of its visual design uh, builds on the built on the visual tropes of the genre. You know, it frequently yeah. feels as if like you know there's something sinister lurking around every corner, the creaks and everything. <laughs> uh, there's something about uh, houses in films that become a metaphor for the mind of the inhabitants. You know, a house, yeah. <laughs> uh, a house that is possessed by ghosts or malevolent spirits, kind of like. Uh, it's a metaphor for the house turning on you, uh, you know. Uh, and in, in this case, it's a family turning on themselves. It is uh, envy and capitalism turning on them or, or mm. warping them into something they don't recognize. Yeah. Um, it's it's very sinister and terrifying, but not in the way that you think, not in, not in typical haunted house horror movies. It's sinister and terrifying in watching the dissolution of a marriage uh, yeah. between Rory and Alison. Um, mm. Carrie Coon, I think, again, knocks it out of the park. She's one of my favorite actresses here. Um, there is a sequence late in the film that is just, I think, Carrie Coon dancing in the disco. Yeah. It has to be like one of my favorite oh my sequences God. of the so Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but what, what do you think about The Nest? I, uh, you know, when I saw this on the list of things that we were going to cover, I was just like, really? Are yeah. you serious? Because we didn't really discuss it um, before that. Mm-hmm. I had already watched the trailer. I mean, always been kind of a big fan of Jude Law. And of course, Kuhn, well, I didn't, uh, I haven't really watched that much of the leftovers, but I saw her in Fargo. Mm. Uh, and big fan of what she can do. Um, you know, so, okay. I, 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 Like you, I was willing to kind of give it a chance. I wasn't expecting to have this package uh, of a movie there. Like, uh, Jude Law is peak Jude Law here. Kind of. Yeah, very underrated for this performance. Yeah, you know, and it, it's it's still kind of an understated performance, right? It's not a part. I mean, the character is loud, but the performance isn't loud. You know, mm-hmm. you get what I mean. And it feels like you know it's a combination of like just so many characters that he's played over the years. Mm. Um, so it really does feel like very peak Jude Law. But as good as Jude Law's performance was here, Gary Coon just steals the show. Oh my god, like such amazing, like technical acting. It's insane. Uh, you know, just remember the way that she delivers her lines, the kind of small looks that she gives, the the sometimes the judgment in her eyes is kind of insane, right? Um, just, and and being able to see the two of them play off of each other, you know, really is quite amazing. But the standout to me is that when they're alone in different scenes, like Kuhn yeah. is just flawless like the her performance is just one of a kind and mm-hmm. that in and of itself right is the the entire reason to watch the movie outside mm-hmm. of the fact that there's so many other good things as well the house is gorgeous the cinematography is creepy and and beautiful at the same time the music is evocative 
I do feel like the kids um, delivered pretty good performances as well. You know, they yeah. played their role, uh, essentially. But, you know, the kind of disillusion of the marriage as it goes along because of these materialistic tendencies and 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 this kind of like flagrant excesses that they've um they they've come um they've they've come to live with right or they've come to terms with um, oh at least know. like rory has kind of forced upon them like, i don't think yeah. um carrie coon's character or their children ever wanted this kind of life yeah i i don't think they do but i do feel like she never quite comes to terms with her own kind of materialistic tendencies Mm, yes, you know, yeah. like there are parts whereby it, that goes under the radar just because of how flamboyant Rory wants to live it up, mm. right? But that doesn't take away from the fact that she too has a part to play with the financial situation that they're in. And mm. I don't think we ever got to deal with that, right? Um, which, which is fascinating and kind of like plays very nicely into the, the ending that we got. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's fascinating. I really, really, this was really one of those things that I was just going in like, okay, Leo, let's just see what this is about. Yeah. Uh, and to have, to to kind of like be able to see these kind of performances in a movie that honestly, like, no one kind of like talked about, no one kind of knew. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's surprising. I really have to say, yeah. Yeah, um, it has it has such great storytelling control, you know, very mm. precise, very mature. Um, every tiny emotional shift and new resentment between the couple registers builds to more profound conflict. Um, and and though the the plot is kind of tightly focused on the central couple, yeah. uh, powered by you know career best work from both actors. Mm-hmm. Um, Durkin is spinning this larger yarn about a decade of excess, you know, set yeah. in the nineteen eighties, you know, and the illusory appeal of upward class mobility. Um, the nest kind of denotes that wealth can rot the spirit uh, as badly as you know, a, a supernatural possession, for example, mm-hmm. uh, a message that transcends its uh, period setting. Um, interestingly enough, I watched the nest um, and Wonder Woman 1984 back to back, not knowing... <laughs> Not knowing the thematic similarity, yeah. uh, that like the nest is essentially like the Max Lord story done right. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 Max Lord's backstory, right? In in our head canon, or it could be at least. Right, like like this, like really, like if this was Max Lord's backstory, I would be so much more into that villain. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. because you know the motivations for Rory, like we are constantly complaining when we're watching the film. Like, at least I was complaining <laughs> to myself that why is Rory doing this? This is unnecessary. You're making like too many. Uh, you're taking too many unnecessary risks yeah. financially and stuff like that, you know. Uh, but then you kind of learn about his roots and and his um, inferiority complex growing mm-hmm. up, uh, growing up working class in in London, you know, uh, especially during the Margaret Thatcher era. Um, yeah, he was um, such an interesting character. Not not so much uh, an antagonist, but not a protagonist either, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, an interesting character study. Absolutely. I mean, like it is. It's just one of those like types, right? Um, that you get, you know, with with what uh, DiCaprio did with Wolf of Wall Street and and the these um or even like what we uh, Gatsby, right? For example, mm-hmm. um, and it's fascinating. It's very fascinating take on that character type, right? Like it gives it a lot more depth than I've seen in in other similar kind of characters as well. Yeah, um, you know, and I'm glad that they took the time to explore where his his origins and his backstory because otherwise I would have very little empathy really 
mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you know, you go from the beginning, especially before that. I'm just like, who is this asshole, right? <laughs> just kind of like dragging everybody in the in the wake of his his desire to be, you know, the man, right? Mm. And then you know, you learn, you you become a bit more compassionate to to his motivations when you find out his backstory. I became a little less empathetic of of um, Allison of Carrie's character, you know, mm. uh, as as their relationship kind of unfolds and as you kind of see the way that she acts out uh, very subtly, right, in, in, in trying to, to fight against what she feels is being imposed on her, you know, mm. but at the same time not being able to, or not even being aware of her own kind of like excesses and her own kind of like uh, um, motivations and emotions as well, mm. you know. So, like, it is a very, very complex character studies for both main characters that plays out in an amazing kind of setting. Like, the house is really beautiful. Um, but it just kind of, like, sets the tone, right? And, like, I think if you didn't tell anyone anything, yeah, yeah the first five minutes, you would have thought it was a setup for, like, a proper horror show. Yes, exactly, right? I yeah. mean, it's so... It, it's a, a near-perfect film here. It's not quite perfect, but yeah. it is it is kind of the cinematic equivalent of those, like, short stories. It feels like a very nice, contained short mm. story, you know, um, that is direct and devastating without overdoing it. You know, it unfolds in a way that, that smart people tend to express, you know, their, their dis- disappointments. Yeah. You know, they, they get it out, they regain emotional control, divert, well, uh, if you can, you know. Yeah. Um, it's a somber grown-up sort of movie with with really remarkable poise and maturity mm-hmm. uh, and a level of craft so compelling and so subtle that it just doesn't evoke any interest in <laughs> uh, marketing, you know. This yeah. is such a hard movie to market. Like, yeah. if I worked, uh, I, I don't know what the studio is, uh, but I worked in this studio, I had I would have no idea on how to pitch this, like, yeah. to, a, to a broad audience. Well, I mean, like, and clearly they didn't, so, you know, it got the marketing it deserves. Speaking yeah. of, like, length right of it like i was surprised that it was only an hour and 40 minutes long because it felt longer and not in a bad way Mm. you know maybe it's just like how dense kind of like the things that they were exploring were that it felt very meaty for for its runtime yeah yeah it's a complex movie despite its economical size yeah Uh, yeah. and i wow i mean again uh the counterpoint to wonder woman 84 Uh, <laughs> which was not economical. Um, yeah. it, 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 his length time actually runs contrary to his message about access. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, very tremendous uh, performances all around here. If you're not familiar with Carrie Coon, uh, I suggest that you go watch this and yeah. then go find like The Leftovers, which she, you know, like I know I said career best year, but The Leftovers was really her best work. But mm-hmm, yeah, yeah this, this is quite similar to her character there anyways. Um, <laughs> and, and, and movies almost never deal with, with marriages with this amount of like intricacy. Usually yeah, it's so, it's so like broad, like oh, you cheated on me, like etc. etc. You know, um, but this yeah. one is it's it's all of those, you know, it's finances, it's cooling, it's finding the right work life balance, you know, yeah. Yeah. um, with the exception of marriage story, I haven't really seen it done like this well. Yeah, I mean, but marriage story is kind of like a different monster on its own, right? Like it doesn't, I don't feel like marriage story explores the facets of marriage that they do in the nest. No, um, yeah, but it, it explores the relationship after the marriage, la, yeah, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the marriage story is almost a sequel to this, if, <laughs> you know, like if if they if they divorce, you know. Yeah, 
yeah, uh, very, very like elegantly composed and, and precisely constructed. Really like this film. I know you would not want to watch this, but please do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we can convince any of you to just kind of catch this, like it's it's a short watch. It really is. And it's like some some really, really good acting. So, you know, uh, give it a shot. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, next up, let's talk about Honeyland. Uh, wow, uh, this is again a 2019 film, but it only came to Singapore in 2020. Uh, yep. As I impl- as I, I stated like, in my top 25 films of uh, 2020 that I live in Singapore, and I will only consider movies released in Singapore either via streaming, uh, virtual film festivals, mm. or stuff like that. Stuff that I can get my hands on to be 2020 films, uh, yeah. uh, which is why I considered stuff like Waves and Little Women to be 2020 films, although they technically were released in late 2019 in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Honeyland, again, what one of those, it is an anthropological um, documentary, very observational. It follows a lonely rural beekeeper in Macedonia, yeah. uh, and it kind of stumbles into a conflict halfway mm. uh, where new neighbors move in into her land, uh, and begin less environmentally conscious farming methods that threaten her livelihood. You know, yeah. um, so it's it's nice. It's it's apparently the the documentary filmmakers just started following uh, Hatits. I think that's the name. The the, yeah. the beekeeper who 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 makes a living cultivating cultivating honey using like very ancient uh, beekeeping traditions. Mm. Uh, so they were just they wanted to follow her. They wanted to follow her relationship with her mother who is ailing how she takes care of her, the struggle over there, living in rural Macedonia. They did not expect the, the family next door to move in. You know, yeah. they, stum- they stumble into this amazing allegorical conflict that is that is representative of so much of the world right now. Like one mm-hmm. is you know, living off the land and with, uh, sustainably. The other tries to make a profit uh, a, a quick buck, like, basically by by pillaging the land, you know, yeah. um, and it and completely disregards uh, Hatzi's advice because you know they they start out as friends. She tries to give them advice, but you know they they never take it, mm-hmm. um, except for maybe one member of the family that the son kind of sees that the dad is in the wrong, you know, and, yeah. and gravitates yeah. more towards uh, the beekeeper. Uh, but yeah, like this is such a great, uh, lush, uh, visually gorgeous uh, documentary. It kind of it, it, it's. It's almost a nature documentary in a sense, you know, yeah. um, with a lot of uh, humanist uh, undertones. Um, it captures such beauty and empathy without a voiceover leading you to think one way or another, mm-hmm. without experts uh, telling you to, to think one way or another. Uh, just a lovely portrait of a lonely Macedonian beekeeper. What an unusual subject. Yeah, and, 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 and I mean, it is so... It is so plain and simple mm. in the, in the fact that it's it's unadorned, right? Like it's very direct and unadorned, like the approach that they decided to take. I was just reading up a, a bit about like um how why they were making this and 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 uh how they kind of like stumbled onto the the plot. Conflict. Yeah, the yeah. conflict, like the, the narrative uh the narrative actually moves forward out by by actual accident. Um yeah. And it's really, really kind of fascinating. I, I think, like, for me, what really sums up the beauty of this movie is when Hadith is just um, sitting and talking to the bees, right? That she's mm-hmm. just moved uh, into into the wall and, and um, she's negotiating the agreement for their relationship, right? <clears throat> With yeah. the bees that she talks to them. And yeah. that's me kind of like, that That was the point in time when I was like, okay, like, I, I think there's something here. Like, let's see where this goes, right? And this is way before, you know, any sort of conflict um, mm-hmm. kind of like uh, arises, right? 
before yeah. the introduction of the neighbor itself. And it's amazing that they caught that sequence mm. um, when they did because like that really kind of like plays out in, in the most unexpected way, I, I feel. Mm. You know, um, very, very heartwarming, extremely beautiful. Some of the scenery around this little hamlet in Macedonia is just like mm-hmm. breathtakingly gorgeous. Yeah. Um, and um, to have this very kind of like small story with such large implications to, mm-hmm. to what it is to be to live in nature and, and how to treat nature and our and, and be reciprocal with, with the way that we live in our world is yeah. kind of mind blowing, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the thing is, right, like what you what you were saying, the original version of Honeyland, you know, that the filmmakers had in mind. Yeah. That original version, this anthropological documentary that that kind of just focuses on a disappearing way of life. Yeah. That in itself would have been a great documentary. Yeah. Even if they didn't stumble into the conflict, yeah. it's just like a sheer stroke of luck, right? Exactly. You know? Yeah. Like and and I enjoyed the unassuming kind of languidness to to the film. It's it's very quiet and passive. Mm. And it's kind of very content to luxuriate. In, in place and revel in solitude, uh, which which uh, I, some people might find it draggy. I like the narrative's loose pacing because it instills yeah. a certain natural structure. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that becomes almost mes- mesmerizing once you get into it. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's a great documentation, as I said, on on a despairing way of life, la, And yeah. you know, uh, watching uh, Hatit spend time caring for her bees, you know, which she keeps in like these stone walls of old structures and and in the rocks of cliffs, you know, instead of modern bee boxes. Yeah. Uh, and, and and her mother, uh, her approach to beekeeping is is almost spiritual and, and environmentally conscious. Uh, this consciousness consciousness is not progressive. Uh, keep in mind, you know, because yeah. like, like you you might want to say like, oh, she's so progressive, she's sustainable. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it, it's rooted in deep tradition. It, it, it was this way. Uh, she has respect for the bees and the natural world itself. Um, yeah, she sells honey in in the markets of uh Macedonia's capital city of uh, Skopje. Uh, mm-hmm. but but she refuses to collect more than half the, the bees' honey at a time, right? You know. Yeah. Um, and and for me, that says a lot about her already. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, there are just these moments of very intimate, almost voyeuristic kind of like uh, um, exchanges that she has with her mother in particular, right? Like, yeah. uh, you know, um, uh, for, for context, for those of you that are listening, you know, the mom is 85, she's partially blind and she's basically bedridden. So mm-hmm. um, all the, all um, obviously is her, her caretaker. The exchanges that they have, and there are a lot of exchanges in this really kind of like claustrophobic and very small room, mm-hmm. um, you know, feel very, very intimate. Um, and like it, it, it kind of like switches from extremely banal, kind of like, oh, you know, this is what I did today. You know, I sold the honey for this much to like really kind of big issues at the same time, you know, where she talked to her mother about her impending, um, you know, passing away and then what she's going to do and all of that. Like, all of those things have such a natural way of revealing what the character, her character is. Mm. You know, every beginning of the movie where she's just like um, going out and, and, and like interacting with people in the market, right? Like you catch a, a whiff of how shrewd she is and how clever she is, right? And how much she understands that, you know, uh, as much as the bees have a part to play in her the ecosystem where, where she, she lives, right? Like she also is a part of this greater kind of like uh, capitalist system and she needs to be able to play that in order to survive you know and every step of the way it does not feel put on it doesn't feel you know there's no pretense there right like even with the camera nearby like mm-hmm. she feels very true 
and um that really that really helps to invest you in her story right mm-hmm. which only becomes even more interesting when when um you know that other people come in yes yeah. you know the, the family next door is an, is interesting also because i like that they're humanized too yeah um they clearly this family there's a lot of them you know it's a huge family they are clearly in dire straits uh, there are a lot of mouths to feed and and not enough to go around they mm-hmm. are dead poor you know uh the father hussein is eager to dive headfirst into anything that can support his family any yeah. money-making endeavor that he can uh and and the situation becomes heart-wrenching and unavoidable when he he makes one desperate choice after another and and hussein kind of erodes uh hatiz's uh, way of life you know yeah um the, the the metaphors at the heart of honeyland become clear in that dichotomy you know because hussein is of course a child of the modern world um his hand is in many ways forced by necessity yeah but the consequences of his actions decimate the natural balance uh, that Hatiz has so embraced and relied upon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's writ large throughout the entire film, this dichotomy. It's, it's nonetheless handled with care. I think Hussein comes off as controlling uh, and belligerent uh, at times, especially yeah. towards his children. But the world in he, he inhabits is so harsh, you know, that you come to understand that there's no guarantee where the next meal is coming from for this family. So yep. it's it's difficult to blame him necessarily as the only culprit for for this um for for this conflict you know it's more yeah. of the societal constructs that have propped up around him that have forced him to be this way yeah yeah for sure i mean like i found as annoyed as i was with his character and and the yeah. decisions that he was making like i understood those decisions like those aren't choices or even like well they're business decisions like at the end of the day right like mm-hmm. he he is you know, how do I maximize my my bottom line? How do I maximize my profit, right? Given the resources that are there. And um, I understand those, right? Mm-hmm. But to put it up against, right, Hadid's way of life and her way of thinking and her way of going about things, right? That is tried and tested and true. Yeah. Right. Those arguments, as logical as they may seem to most of us living in this strange kind of like late stage capitalism yeah, uh, that we have right now, like it, it rings so empty, you know, mm-hmm. and the documentary shows that to be true in the results of those uh, in those decisions, right? And like incredibly powerful. Um, but again, like it's amazing how they managed to make this. The story yeah. tells itself, right? And I, it's I'm I'm envious of the fact that they were in the right place at the right time to catch catch this story, uh, because. You know, it's it's hard to script that. It's hard to to script something like that. It's hard to, you know, get the kind of quality that you get with 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 an actual real life story playing out. It's quite yeah. yeah. Um, the reason I compared it to a nature documentary, I mean, of course, there's a nature theme going on here, but the reason yeah. I compared it to a nature documentary is I felt like the approach to hatids and and beekeeping is similar to let's say BBC's approach to Planet Earth or Blue Planet in in uh-huh. that. You just have a bunch of guys sitting there, fly on the wall, try to be un- as unobtrusive <laughs> as possible. You wait there for like years, you know. You capture all this footage, hope hoping to stumble onto something interesting, yeah. Yeah. you know. And they do like it's it, the the filmmaking here is one of patience and mm-hmm. one of observation. You know, they're not trying to lead the characters or or the subjects in any way yeah. to make it more of an interesting story. You know, um, yeah. I mean that that's why I compared it to a nature documentary. Like yeah. it's it's yeah. human na- it's a human nature documentary. Yeah. It really reminds me. I mean, as I was watching this, I, I it really reminded me of um 
a lot of the the stories that we've actually covered before, like Wolf Walkers, like uh, yeah, Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, like Princess Mononoke, you know, like these whole allegories, right? For for our, our relationship with with Mother Nature and and you know it's uh, and the choices that we make, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to survive and or prosper. Um, yeah. but to see it take place like this is just like the form of it just surprises me you know yeah yeah and 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 Hussein is just a different version of Rory from from the nest you know? yeah yeah you know just just in a different context and on a different level but in in essence they are they are creatures uh craft the, the the greed in inside of them is is crafted through through other things uh, through 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 a society of access through a capitalistic system um, it's it's great. Like I love this film so much. You know, like when I went to watch, when I went to watch it at at a projector um mm-hmm. last year, there was like no one there. Like I was so sad. You know, like this this is a really interesting. I mean, admittedly, some might say boring film, but I didn't find it boring at all. I found it mesmerizing. I yeah. I love the loose pacing. I love the natural structure of it. Yeah, I feel like. I mean, given that we watch so much, right, and and so much of the time, like everything is scripted, the pacing is is intentional, it's purposeful, and all of that, right? Just to be able, this is a breath of fresh air, to have a story delivered to you, in this form, with like as much punch, right, as as as, as strong of a message as possible, without being preachy at the same time, right? Yeah. It, it's hard to to find film like this, you know, something that is so real and so powerful at the same time, mm-hmm. right? That just is right uh, it's it's quiet and powerful and, and and intimate and there's no need to kind of like shout on the hilltops about it or or you know there's no need to for any kind of pretense and it's a rare rare thing i i think in film these days so i definitely highly recommend harleen land yeah uh definitely man um before we cap it off right like i know i know i didn't prep you for this before but you you've seen a bunch of films uh, last year already yeah. what would be like your top five of of 2020 Ooh, uh, off the top of my head, damn. Uh, I actually didn't really think about it because you do the heavy lifting for that kind of <laughs> every year. Uh, wow. Um, I mean, it can be genre as well. You know, there was a lot of good genre stuff to say too. Well, I'm drawing a blank. Maybe I should look through. Wait, where's our where's our list of things that we've done? Uh. You're putting me in a tough spot, hits. Oh, that's okay, man. Uh, in in any case, maybe I'll I'll say like some of the notable mentions that we haven't talked about yet. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. primarily because like I, it's not that I don't think that these are bad films. Yeah. I think that they just weren't good enough, but have a, that have like one or two qualities that are so special that I, I do feel I have to mention them. Yeah. Uh, number one, uh, that we didn't talk about last year was Sound of Metal. Um, mm. It is Riz Ahmed's movie. He turns in a brilliant performance here as as Rubin in this very passionate character study of a heavy metal drummer who is going deaf. You know um, how Darius Marder, who is the director, uses um, sound design to convey uh, the struggle of go- of coping with hearing loss. Yeah. Uh, it's so wonderful. Um, Riz Ahmed deserves an Oscar nomination for for his performance here. Uh, the movie overall maybe doesn't cohere as a whole. It's good, but not great. Mm-hmm. But Riz Ahmed's performance is great. Um, another thing I do have to mention, something that came out in December as well, yeah. you know, it's, a, it's a film called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Oh, uh, it is, that, yeah. 
Chadwick Boseman's final performance. Yeah. Uh, the, the only film that, that we, we can see of him posthumously. Um, it follows, you know, uh, the mother of the blues, Ma Rainey. Uh, again, a spectacular performance by mm-hmm. Viola Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, she clashes for control over her music with, uh, with her white manager. Meanwhile, the trumpeter uh, Levy, who is played by Ch- Chadwick Boseman, spurs on his fellow musicians into... Uh, revealing truths that will change their lives during this recording session. So yeah. it all takes place in 1920s Ricardo, uh, in 1920s Chicago, uh, inside a recording studio in in sweltering conditions. It's in summer. Uh, it's basically a stage play like, that's been adapted into into a film. Yeah. Um, great performances from Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman. Mm-hmm. Um, vibrant cinematography, great music, great costumes. The thing is, right, this film feels too stagey. Okay. Uh, yeah. Which is why it doesn't really work as a film. Uh-huh. But performance-wise, um, Chadwick Boseman and Viola Davis both deserve uh, nominations for supporting actor and and lead actress, uh, respectively, lah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um. Yeah, man. Um. And lastly, I, I kind of want to mention Mank, uh, David Fincher's first film since Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. Um. Gorgeous, bracing, immersive trip into 1930s Hollywood. Uh, through the eyes of uh, Citizen Kane screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz uh, as he races to finish the screenplay of Citizen Kane for Austin Wells. It is steeped in glamour, sleaze, you know, glory and corruption. Um, Mank is such a meticulous black and white period drama that is made with dense historical details and it unpeels the power structure of America's studio system, the yeah. studio machinery. Um, it, it, Gary Oldman is getting all sorts of praise for his lead performance, as he does deserve mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, real star MVP though is Amanda Seyfried. Uh, really? She's fantastic in this, you know. Um, and the whole movie as a whole is really good. It's a love letter and a cautionary tale yeah. that is layered into a met- metatextual film. Uh, mm-hmm. Very good film. The only thing is that it just feels pacing wise a bit too long, oh, okay. uh, and and it doesn't really. Uh, the things he has to say are all good. It's just not. It, the themes just don't cohere as well as I wanted them to be. Right. Uh, it, it made my top twenty-five. Don't get me wrong, you know, but it, it didn't make my top twenty, You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. There's so, some of the stuff that I maybe wanted to mention, but I'm I'm saving those for for future episodes. Maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll get back around to those. Oh. Um. Charlie Kaufman's. Um. I'm thinking about ending things. Oh yes. Very Ooh, good. The very most very good. Challenging film Kaufman has made. That's saying a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> challenging very film. Kaufman has made in a long time. It is a is an existential minefield, like all his films, but just taken to the nth degree. Um, it's kind of a surreal film that follows a young woman who takes a road trip with her full intellectual boyfriend. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, played by Todd from Breaking Bad. Um, it's it's you know she's filled with thoughts of breaking up, and everything she understands kind of begins to unravel around her into this like solipsistic dive into the rift between the mind and the world that's filtered through it. A very impressionistic. Impressionistic meditation on on aging, reality, yeah. and regret. Um, for a lot of people who are not like pop culture, like hardcore, right? Like they may not understand some of the things that Kaufman has done here. <laughs> you know, like some of the movie discussions are lifted word from word from actual reviews that I've read, like really popular reviews. Yeah. Uh, you know, things like that. Um, the, uh, entire discussions about art are taken entirely from reviews too. You know, it's it's Kaufman is trying to say that where is there original thought? Yeah. Or are you just subliminally, um, uh, are, are your opinions subliminally um, uh, affected by pop culture around you? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, yeah. it's interesting. Like, I really, really dug it. Perhaps not the best Kaufman film, 
No. But the most challenging Kaufman film is and the yeah. most the densest lah. Yeah, it is definitely the densest. I'm like I don't know how he's going to go after this. You know, I don't know if he can get any more dense, right? I, I think mm-hmm. like he needs to kind of like step back a bit and, and, and kind of like look at some of the older work that he's done. Yeah. Um, like such a strange and fascinating presentation, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but but a, a good movie nonetheless. Yep. Yeah, uh, and enjoyed it as well, man. Uh, last thing I do want to mention is a Polish film uh, called Corpus Christi. Uh, mm. It is from Polish director uh, Jan Komasa. Uh, it is a film of spiritual st- struggle. It, it follows a 20-year-old priest. Well, okay. It follows a 20-year-old man named Daniel. Yep. He is an ex-convict. He he dreams of joining the clergy. You know, when he was in prison, he 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 turned over a new leaf. You know, he's a he's he's born again, uh, and he wants to become a priest, but he cannot join the clergy because of his criminal past. So instead, he goes to a small town, and he impersonates a priest, uh, and he becomes a pillar of that small town community. Um, clearly, he is not trained traditionally as a priest, yep. so his unorthodox take on holiness actually seems to have a positive impact on his unsuspecting flock. Um, The the town is actually devastated by by grief after a terrible accident that left a bunch of children dead. Uh, So he tries to help them heal. Uh, And it's led by a terrific performance by Bartos uh, Bielania. Um, It's such a blistering morality play because, you know, there is a a real hypocrisy about the town as well. You know, they they are hiding ugly lies, uh, much in the same way that... um, Daniel is hiding an ugly lie about his own past, you know. Yeah. Um, great film about crisis of faith, you know. I like films about priests, yeah, like stuff like doubt and stuff like that, mm, you know. But, but yeah. yeah, that's why. But Daniel isn't actually a priest, so I don't know whether that counts. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, he plays the role of a priest, and I think that's good enough. He pretends, uh, he pretends, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but because, you know, he's not so... Uh, he doesn't skirt around tough topics and issues and all that. He's very direct and straightforward. Yeah. Very energetic. You know, he he tends... Uh, he becomes uh, an accidental priest, uh, an accidental pillar of the community. And it's really, really good. I, I enjoyed it. It's a Polish film. Interesting. Uh, yeah, and you, I'm, I'm going to talk about this later on uh, because, like, I'm... I'm Gonna force Isa to watch this and what I'm another thing. There is a midlife crisis movie called Another Round. It's called Drunk in in Denmark, but there's a midlife crisis oh, movie wait. called Another Round starring Mitz, Mats Mikkelsen. Yeah, I've seen the trailer for this. Fucking phenomenal, man! I missed it in 2020. It would have been in my top 25, but I missed it. I caught it at like December second, uh, yeah. sorry, in January second or January third or something. God, man, I'm so upset. This. Yeah, like flip my radar. The premise itself is fascinating, right? Like with the number of teachers that we know personally. Yeah, yeah. Right, like it is so fascinating. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down to watch it. I'm down to watch it for sure. And then we'll yeah. talk about it. I wanted to compile it into um a midlife crisis theme, uh, film. Uh, yeah. like, like, um, I don't know whether you've seen Sideways. Yes, I've seen Sideways. Yeah, okay, we can yeah. do a midlife crisis episode, sure. Yeah, the sideways, and then like last year, there's also another film that came out called the Forty Year Old Version. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's really good. Also, it's about a uh, um, a playwright, a very successful playwright, a black playwright in her forties, uh, finding her career has stalled, then she decides to become a rapper. Um, yeah. clearly a midlife crisis there, uh, but also a, a creative uh crisis as well. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about like pairing that together. Maybe in in the coming uh, couple of months, we'll we can talk about that lah. Yeah, sure. Let's do that. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, sideways and Nanavo Round are actually pretty similar. It's about like a bunch of middle-aged dudes like looking to escape via <laughs> <by>, uh, alcohol. 
<laughs> yeah, the con the context is slightly different, but yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, and, and next time we'll be joining you, we'll be talking about honorable mentions for television. Mm-hmm. Um I have recommended uh, a short little dramedy called Little no called Feel Good, I'm sorry. Yep. Uh that stars Canadian comedian Mae Martin. Uh but it's set in London, she has moved to London. Uh it's kind of a, a very small but poignant story about uh, addiction, sobriety, and uh, lesbian relationships. Uh, I've also recommended a sprawling documentary called uh, City So Real, which follows the 2019 Chicago mayoral elections, which, get this, had 21 different candidates on the ballot. Uh, Insanity, you know. Uh, And uh, just so happens that the final episode, uh, uh, they were filming the final episode, COVID hits, so it, it also functions as like a bit of a an early documentary into COVID's first uh, impact uh, on Chicago. Interesting. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and also how like the the politician that we all so believed in in the in the documentary, the one who eventually won, who promised such big things, handled COVID so badly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Yeah. Uh, and finally, I want to talk about Mythic Quest. I know some of you probably have heard about this. It's a pretty <laughs> hype show. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, right, like I find that nobody ever turns on their Apple TV Plus. Like, well, yeah, yeah, so many good things on there. There are, but like, I mean, again, right? There's just so many things available at any if you given have point. An, if you have an Apple product, you have one year free trial. I'm telling you, you should get on Apple TV Plus. There's a lot of good shit there. Yeah, yeah. Well, well maybe people will uh, be more open to it after we're done talking about Mythic Quest. Mm. Yeah, we've covered yeah. quite a few Apple shows, right? Mm, on genre, yeah. yeah. Um, Wolf Walkers, for example, was an Apple show. Yeah. Yeah, uh yeah, but like there's some good stuff also like uh Ted Lasso is on mm. um Apple TV Plus Little America is good. Ted Lasso is one that I want to kind of package in in the future as a as kind of a feel good uh comfort show. Mm-hmm. Um Ted Lasso stars Jason Sudeikis. He is an American football coach who goes to England to try to coach English football. <laughs> uh it's I mean, the premise itself sold me. I loved it. <laughs> but, like, what I did not expect was for Ted Lasso to be, like, the live-action Paddington. Uh, really? Which is what it ended up being. Like. It's, it's just a story about a really nice guy who, who truly, truly believes that success is not measured on the field, but success is how, how he can make his players and his, his, uh, his assistant coaches, the managers, and everyone in his team make them the best people they can be. That is his definition of success. Right. Uh, okay. and, and, and to them, the, the results on the field. Uh, and, and he feels that if he can make them better people, they will perform better. Um, that is essentially what Ted Lasso is about. It's fantastic. It's, it's great. It's Paddington live action. <laughs> so what, what, uh, what episode are we bundling this under? Man, I, I kind of wanted to do an episode about, the, about like sports shows. Okay. Uh, either that or I will bundle this together with Paddington as like feel-good things. <laughs> okay. But there are also like, strangely enough, a lot of sports shows that uh, are not about the sport. Are not about the players playing the sport, but, yeah. but about ancillary people around. Mm-hmm. Like one of my favorite shows is Brock Meyer, who's about a baseball commentator. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. There's another show by Aaron Sorkin from ages past, you know, back in the 90s, called Sports Night. It's about um, broadcast hosts, you know, yeah. ESPN Sports Center type people who run a Sports Center type show. Uh, you know, things like that. There's a, sh- there's a movie called Moneyball. Uh, whoa, really? Wow. Really <laughs> again by Aaron Sorkin, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, about. Um, management and stats uh basically they're employing a new algorithm to help them draft players yeah uh 
it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, people on the periphery of sports, like, not the players themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like that would be that would be a fascinating kind of like episode. I think. Uh, always yeah. down for that. Yeah, it's it's like it just occurred to me that Aaron talking did two of them. He he must have some interest in sports, I guess. Uh, uh, well, if we do end up covering that, I think there'll be a pretty interesting discussion to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely, man. Yeah, Sokin is into politics and he's into sports. Those Same. are the only two things he does. Yeah. Uh, he made one show about comedy that wasn't funny, so that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Studio City and the Sunset Strip sucks, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, uh, 2018 was weirdly a good, a, a good uh, time for movies. Before we leave off, uh, what are your most most uh, anticipated films of this year? Most anticipated films of this year? I'm the looking... Start- I'm looking yeah, forward like, to Black Widow for sure. Black Widow's number one, okay. Yeah. Uh what else is coming out? Wait. Uh, I'm surprised that Dune wasn't the first thing off your of your lips. Well, that's because I'm not really sure if it's gonna be released this year. Oh true. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um I'm from what I understand that if we are lucky, it'll be end of the year. Mm. Uh but I doubt so. Uh, mm-hmm. given the things that are going on. So yeah, I kind of like, I, I'm, I don't want to get my hopes up just because I, I I really, 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 really am very invested in this Dune movie. Yep. Uh, yeah. And so I, I kind of like mentally just crossed that off for now until okay. they, they announce it differently. Um, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, what else? I mean, what are you looking forward for too? Um, Dune is definitely my number one, but you know, as, as you mentioned, I'm not sure it's coming out either. Um... The thing I'm most looking forward to. Okay, um, there is a Sopranos uh, prequel called The Many Saints of Newark mm. uh, by David Chase. Yeah. Supposed to be re- supposed to be released on the big screen. I'm not sure. But, you know, um, if not, HBO Max has it. Um, that's the one I'm looking forward to the most because I'm a, I'm a huge Sopranos fan. Yeah. Uh, and this is a big screen pre- prequel, I think, focusing on Tony Soprano's dad. Oh. Uh, yeah, uh, very interesting. We Tony Soprano will be in the film. Uh, as a little baby, uh, obviously, you know, James Gandolfini <laughs> has passed, so you know yeah. they're not going to de-age him into a child. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. The, the The Sopranos is like when I talk about like greatest shows of all time, mm-hmm. which is The Wire, mind you. Like, there's no question, The Wire is greatest show of all time. <laughs> yeah. But I keep, I always say to people, like these, all these greatest shows of all time, Breaking Bad, The Wire, Better Call Saul, all these prestige shows, right? The Americans, etc., yeah. etc., et would not exist without The Sopranos. Yeah. It is the original prestige show. It it opened the doors for that kind of storytelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Many scenes of New York. Um, mm. that's, that's my number. And also Eternals, mind you. Mostly because I'm a huge fan of Chloe Zhao. Mm. Um, we will talk about Chloe Zhao soon when Nomadland uh, when Nomadland opens in Singapore. Yeah. Um, Chloe Zhao has a very non-narrative style. She is her movies are like Honeyland, basically. Uh-huh. Uh except scripted. Like if you've seen The Rider or if you've seen Nomadland, it's just it's very much like like Honeyland. Like, very yeah. unscripted, very non-narrative, very unadorned. Uh and for her to tackle a, a cosmic adventure in the MCU with the Eternals mm. is so mind-boggling to me. Yeah. Number number one, I was questioning like Feige's decision to um to hire her for a film of this skill. It's like yeah. aren't you kind of pairing the wrong director with the wrong film? Um, mm. I was pretty shocked to, uh, to to find out that Chloe Zhao asked uh, Kevin Feige to do this film. Really? Like she wrote, she wrote a spec script and sent it to him. Like she wanted, she like probably the only person in the world that is a big fan of the Eternals because, dude, we are comic book people. We are not yep. big fans of the Eternals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's a uh, okay, okay. Let's not get into Eternals now. This is not right to do that. But yeah, I mean, like I think it'll be fairly interesting. I, I think the casting choices have been pretty interesting as well. Yes, um, so yeah. we'll see how it turns out. 
Um, yeah, it's the di- director choice that, that puzzles me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as far as that goes, I think I'm looking forward to Raya and The Last Dragon. Yeah, um, the Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia one. I, I just want to see how they're, you know, they're going to do that. Um, mm. Yeah, but other than that, is Shang-Chi this year? Shang-Chi supposedly next year. Next year, okay. So we can, I can like just cross that off. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty much about it. Is there anything else? Yeah. Um, Matrix 4 is coming out this year. Uh, stuff like that. You know? I'm not sure. Like, uh, I'm not sure. We'll see. We'll see. Mm. On yeah. the local front, I do have some news. I don't think I can reveal it yet. Lah, but um, a little Singaporean documentary called Sementara by our friend John mm-hmm. Linda, uh released it. Uh, he co-directed it with, uh, with another person, of course. Um, uh, it's, it's supposed to be released uh, in the first quarter of 2021, uh, although I did manage to catch it at SGIFF. Uh-huh. Uh, great Singaporean documentary. I would highly recommend uh, you go seek it out like, when, when it's released. Like. Yeah. Okay, I take that back. Uh, HBO has confirmed that it'll be doing its October 1st. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah Alright, so because... like, yeah, tune back on the, on the menu. Yeah, because, you know, HBO has HBO Max, right? Like, the whole controversy was whether it was going to be released in cinemas or on streaming, you know? Yeah. Uh, and if Legendary Pictures loses their lawsuit, it's going to be released on HBO Max. Mm, mm, mm. The, the thing is like their lawsuit I understand yeah. you know where, they, where they're coming from Dude should be watched on the big screen the thing is sure. H- HBO is not taking away that option for you it's, it's all their debuts that they're proposing they're, it's going to be released on the big screen and at home simultaneously yeah. what Legendary Pictures is, about, is worried about is their bottom line of course uh, you know, because yeah, they course. take a, a percentage of the box office profits but they're framing it as this like oh it deserves to be seen on the big screen etc you promised us on the, in the contract that it will be uh, released in cinemas the thing yeah. is a lot of people miss, uh, like, are misinformed when they are railing against HBO Max HBO yeah. Max is not taking that away it will still be released on the big screen if you want to you, go, you can go to a cinema and watch it the thing is that there are many people who don't want to go to cinemas right now mm-hmm. and you need to give them an option. What, are you going to push Dune to 2024? You know, what, you know like, what's the other option? I like, just put it out. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, I totally understand. I think like any Dune fan worth his salt or spice in this case, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's going to want to watch it in the cinema, right? Like anybody who knows Villeneuve is going to want to watch it in cinemas anyway. Anybody who knows anything about Dune is going to want to watch it in the cinema, right? And if you're one of those who don't want to be in cinemas right now or can't be in cinemas, which is fair enough, yeah. um, then at least you have the option, right? Yeah. I, I don't think that it's going to really... I mean, people not being able or wanting to be in cinemas is what's going to eat into Legendary's bottom line and it's not going to be HBO Max putting it on streaming. Yeah, I mean, Legendary is like acting like COVID was HBO's fault, you know. Yeah. Uh, like they're just offering audiences another option. You know? If you don't want to risk your health, you can go watch it at home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, honestly, it is a wise choice. But if, if you're a big fan of Villeneuve and you want to watch it in cinemas, they're not taking that option away from you. You can yeah. do it. And frankly, cinemas, man, I'm going on a rant about cinemas right now. Cinemas have done shit for the last 20 to 30 years to, to deserve our money. They have not evolved. They have mm-hmm. not, they've done nothing They've just sat back on their fat asses and like charge fourteen dollar popcorns. Uh, the screens are dirty. The sound is terrible. Yeah. The floors are sticky. But they do nothing to stop people from from talking on their phones, uh, checking texts, uh, in the middle of a cinema, people coming in late and shit like that. You know, in the middle of a scene, walking across you, dude. Cinemas are terrible. Fuck the theatrical experience. Not because I hate big screens, mm-hmm. but because I hate the way that major 
cinema chains are being run. Yeah. Oddly, oddly enough, it is the small boutique distributors like like the projector that's gonna survive COVID because they actually make an effort to build a community and mm-hmm. to build like a, um, a a good space for for cinephiles to to be here. The yeah. other cinemas are just fucking fast food chains that just like <laughs> don't do anything. We press play, then you give them like fifty bucks, you know, for your popcorn and your M and M's and your ticket and your drink. Like, it's good lah. Like this is this is what what happened to all those fucking cab drivers who yeah. refused to take me home and say, oh boy, I cannot accept nets. Fuck off lah. Then Uber came along and what happened to you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there was a, a long pent-up rant that people wanted to say. Well, well I totally understand. I mean, like, yeah. it, innovate or die, right? And I think COVID mm-hmm. has, has definitely proved that. You know, um, we we will see if anything changes. We really will. I mean, like, we're on the cups of vaccination and all of that. Yeah. So... Yeah. I don't know. I mean, but again, like with with what um, streaming services are doing now, they're they're knocking on the door. If you don't innovate, you're gonna die. So we'll see if anything it, does change. Indeed, man. Yeah. Uh, and that about wraps it up for this episode of uh, Behold. Uh, we will be back soon with uh the honorable mentions for best TV of the year. Uh, till then, this is it, Zero. This is Isa. Goodbye, guys. <laughs>